Let me just quickly add my welcome to what you've already heard earlier from Scott, from Brian, from the worship team. My name is Rob. If you're new to fellowship, thanks for being here. Really glad that you're here. I haven't said this in a while because I haven't seen you all in a while, but I'd love to get to know you over time. Lloyd and I both would. If you haven't met me, just come on down after a service sometime and say hello, introduce yourself, or maybe you've been around a while and it's good to catch up. Love to do that. Um, One of the things I appreciate about fellowship is the way we get to teach. Lloyd and I do, you know, we don't just have one teacher. Um, It gives us extra time to prepare each message. You get to hear different styles and that kind of thing. But a challenge of that is getting to know two congregations. And I really do want to get to know you. So I would love to meet you if we get an opportunity to do that. Please take advantage of it. We're going to start this morning with a little game of Name That Tune. And since we are near Music City, after all, I figure there are some of you in the room that can name this song in just five notes. Thank you for the challenge. Here's how it's going to work. I'm going to play a little clip of a song. And as soon as you know what the song is, I want you to raise your hand. All right. And then I'll call on somebody just to shout out the name of the song. I don't think this one's too hard. We'll see. You ready for name that tune? Okay. That wasn't exactly exciting, but that's okay. I'm going to do it anyway. Let's, na- let's play the tune. Give it a minute. This is the suspense is building. I was going to give you, I, I can't give you, there it is. Okay, okay, I saw this hand right here first. I can't get no satisfaction. Okay, you know this song. Some of you just don't know you know this song yet. Keep playing it. Keep going. recorded that song? The Stones, the Rolling Stones, 1965. Now, I, I was not yet a dream at that point in time. Some of you were around. Some, many, many of us were not around. That was the year my parents got married. They were not listening to this kind of music. My parents grew up in like a very conservative Christian home. And, you know, this, this was the music that sort of shook the world. That Like, you know, that this was, in fact, you know, that, that, that this was uh, very... Um, uh, what, what would it be called, censored kind of music. Now, we listen to the lyrics of it today, and we're like, I think there's some hints of some things, but it's not that bad. But that day of time, like, this was rock and roll. This was waking the world up. In fact, this particular song put the Rolling Stones on the map. It was the num- first number one song they had in the United States, Rolling Stones, or British band. The story goes that this song was written when Keith Richards, who's the guitar player for the Rolling Stones, was, was sleeping one night in a hotel. In the middle of his sleep, he woke up with that guitar riff. And he, he woke up, he got his guitar, he recorded it on a, on a cassette recorder he had, and then he went back to sleep. Then in next morning, he didn't remember doing that. 
He woke up. Of course, you don't know, know what's going on here, okay? But let's just say he woke up, didn't remember what, what, what happened. And he, he saw the recorder. He hit play, and he heard that little you know, guitar riff. It was about two minutes of recording, and then he heard himself snoring for the next 40 minutes until the tape ended. <laughs> so that's how that song was written. He went to Mick Jagger, who's the lead singer. Mick Jagger wrote the lyrics. So you had this song come alive. Now, in... Uh, a couple times, two or three times, the Rolling Stone, the magazine now, not the band, Rolling Stone magazine, has published the, the greatest 500 songs of all time. And in their, I think both their 2004 and 2010 publication, this song was number two. Okay, that is how much of an impact that particular song has made. It's sort of found its way into our consciousness as a culture, as a society. And I, I was thinking this week, what has been so enduring about this song? I think it's more than just the catchy guitar riff, although that will stay in your head. I think it's more than the fact that the, the chorus, I, you know, I can't get no, I can't get no. You can hear that chorus one time and never forget it. I think it's more than that. I think the theme of the song speaks to something deep in our souls. I think it puts words to an inner craving that we all have. So whether you grew up listening to rock and roll music or whether like Amy Grant was as like much rock and roll as you got, which is how it was in my house, this song is not just the anthem of a rock and roll generation. This song is the anthem of the fallen human heart because we're born into this world seeking something to satisfy us. We're born into this world craving satisfaction. Now, you might not use that word. You might use the word happiness. All I want is to be happy. You might use the word peace. I just want to have peace in my life. Maybe you just want to succeed. Maybe you just want to be loved. You just want to be noticed. You just want to have a voice. You just want to be somebody. Whatever it is, all of us have this thing inside of us. It's just, I just want this thing in my life. And oftentimes we live our entire lives, you know, essentially living out the course. And I try, and I try, and I try, and I try. I can't get no satisfaction. The text this morning is all about satisfaction. It's about contentment. It's about what it means to have real contentment. So one of the things that I hope you've appreciated about the book of Philippians as we've gone through it is how practical it is. Two weeks ago, was it more than that? It feels like it. I think it was two weeks ago, we talked about anxiety. Last week, Lloyd talked about the thoughts that come into our minds and, and how your thoughts are always leading you either toward peace or away from peace. This morning, we're talking about contentment. These are 21st century themes. They're also first century themes because they're human themes. They're eminently practical. And so let's dive into our text because we all need to know what the Bible has to say about contentment, about satisfaction. It is a cry of our human hearts. Now, Paul's gonna get into this subject in a little bit of an unexpected way. Look at verse 10 with me. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, remember the context here. This church in Philippi, this city of Philippi, had been supporting Paul throughout his journeys. 
materially, financially supporting Paul. They sent him, in a sense, as a missionary. And so Paul, now in prison for quite some time, hadn't received any financial support. In this particular society and culture, if you were in jail, you were not provided for by the state like we're accustomed to. You wouldn't get, you know, three squares a day and clothing and all those things. You had to be uh, provided for by friends or family who knew you and, and cared enough or through the charity of strangers. And so Paul had had his needs met, but in a sense, he was longing for, hoping for reconnection with this church. And so he's saying, now at length, you've revived your concern. And it's almost like Paul checks himself and he's like, now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea that I, that I thought you'd forgotten about me. I know that you were thinking of me. You just didn't have the opportunity. There was a long distance between Rome and Philippi and likely they didn't even get the news that he was in prison until many months after he started being in, in prison. Uh, one more quick thing on this verse before we go on. This is kind of just for fun, but it's, it's a beautiful uh, part of the Greek. When it says you have revived, that 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 word revived, Paul used a horticultural term that means a flower or plant coming back in bloom after it had been dormant, maybe during the winter season. So from Paul's perspective, you know, he's in prison, he's struggling. It's sort of like the winter of his soul. And then one day, Epaphroditus, the messenger from the Philippian church, shows up with greetings and news and this financial provision. And he's just like, the, the flowers come back into this long winter, spring has arrived. That, that's this, this image that Paul is evoking here, which I thought was beautiful. Now let's, let's go on to verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Pause there for just a minute. I think the ESV is a little bit confusing because when I first read this, I read it as, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. It's just like whatever situation I'm in, I'm supposed to be content. That's actually not what the Greek is saying. It, it, it would be better to understand it. I've learned in whatever situation I am in to be content, or I've learned to be content in whatever situation I am in. And so then he goes on to explain that with this next sentence. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. No, low and high. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Opposites, abundance, and need. Opposites. What Paul is doing here is really interesting. He's using his own experience to say, regardless of the highs and lows of human circumstance, I've learned the secret of being content in any of those things. Paul had experienced it. He experienced it at all. He'd been well-fed. He grew up in probably a middle, upper middle class environment. Before he became a Christian, he was kind of running around in the highest uh, levels of Jewish scholarship. He was sort of an elite, an academic elite in that level. And then, of course, he'd also been on the brink of starvation. He'd been shipwrecked. He'd been beaten. He'd been thrown in prison. This was at least the second time that he was in prison. So he's saying, look, I've experienced it all. And in all those circumstances, I've learned the secret. Now, the key phrase here, of course, is I have learned in whatever situation I am, to be content. And I want to talk about this key word, content. In the Greek, it literally means uh, self-sufficient. 
It's an interesting word. Now, content in our English means a lot of, uh, it's a very general word. We use it all the time. But in the first century in the Greek culture, this was primarily used in philosophical conversations. Philosophy was all the rage. You had the, the different schools of Greek philosophy. Think back to high school or college, you know, for those of you who are, who are past those schools, some of you are still in it. You're still in school right now. But do you remember studying about Greek philosophy a little bit? Do you remember studying the Stoics? Stoicism, Stoic philosophers, um, they use this word all the time. In fact, for Stoic philosophers, contentment or self-sufficiency was the highest goal of human achievement. And what that meant for them was to transcend your circumstances and be happy and be at peace within yourself. Apart from wealth, Apart from anything, in fact, some of these Stoic philosophers would you know, literally live impoverished lives on purpose just so they could build within themselves this inner sense of peace, this inner sense of contentment, this self-sufficiency. So the Stoics, and this is a really big deal because Paul would have been very familiar with Stoic philosophy and it would have been a, a common thing to talk about out in the marketplaces. What philosopher do you follow, et cetera? Um, Paul may have had in mind the contemporary philosopher Seneca. Some of you may remember studying about Seneca. He was a famous Stoic philosopher. He was a poet and a playwright. He was very influential. He lived during the time of Paul. And here's what he wrote to describe sort of the goal of, of life in, in, from the, the Stoic's perspective. He wrote, the wise man is sufficient unto himself for a happy existence. You see what Seneca was saying? He was saying, if you want to be satisfied, Mick Jagger, you know, don't look to all that other stuff. Don't look to, to uh, music and, and relationships and money and all these things. You, you'll find satisfaction internally. So if Seneca and Mick Jagger had had a conversation, Seneca would have said, Mick Jagger, you're, you're a fool. The reason you can't get no satisfaction is because you're trying too hard. You, know, you try and you try and you're trying all these things out there. It's not out there, Mick Jagger. Contentment is in yourself, in learning to be self-sufficient. That's what the word content means in the Greek. Now, why do we go down that rabbit hole? I want you to see something. Right now, through verse 12, it seems very much like Paul is saying Seneca is right. You know, the Stoics are right. That true contentment or self-sufficiency is not about your circumstances. It's not about whether you're low or whether you're high. It's not about hunger. It's not about abundance. It's about being self-sufficient. That's essentially what Paul has said right now. In a way, you could say, okay, Paul is, is agreeing with the Stoic philosophers. I think Paul is juking us a bit. He's taking us down this path using a very particular Greek philosophy word, content, self-sufficient, but he's not yet done. Now we're gonna look at the next verse. Actually, okay, before you look at verse 13, which is one of the most well-known verses in Philippians, you have to understand the connection to verse 12. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now you have to imagine a colon right there, okay? Punctuation was not in the original Greek, so we kind of have to supply it. Paul is saying, here's the secret. It's the next verse. I can do all things through him, who strengthens me. That is the secret to contentment. 
There's so much to say about this verse. I think we need to start with how most people misunderstand this verse. Because it might be the best known verse in Philippians, but it's certainly the most misunderstood verse in Philippians. Let me prove what I'm saying. Let me demonstrate what I'm saying. Uh, I did a, a Google search for the phrase, I can do all things through Christ. And then I clicked on the images, you know, to see what images come up. Now, of course, there's a lot of just Instagram images with a pretty background in the verse, but I also found this. This is how I usually think of this verse. This is how this verse has sort of seeped into our culture. It's like this sports team out to win the victory and they're waving the flag. You know, they're claiming victory. I can do all things. I, you know, we can overcome. I can block and catch and pass and do all these things. I also found this image. Now, I, I don't know if you guys can see our, our friend Tim here, but, you know, he's, he's got these. I like to make fun of him because he was a good guy but played for the wrong team, you know, from my perspective. But <laughs> so he's got Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nothing against Tim Tebow. I actually appreciate the way he uses his platform for his testimony. Let me give you another one. You know, I don't know if you can see this down here. Here it is on the sneakers. Anybody know whose sneakers these are, by the way? Yeah, Steph Curry sneakers. Again, nothing against Steph Curry. Like, I'm not at, at all uh, poking fun. Um, I, I taught this message last week at Brentwood because that's how it works, right? Lloyd and I teach a message and then we bring it down here the next week. So you guys always get the better messages, by the way, because they get better over time. But uh, a member of the body at, at uh, the Brentwood campus sent me this next image this week. And this was at their uh, child's basketball game. They were going to an away game at, at a, a Christian school, I think in Smyrna. Now to get a scope for this, you have to understand this down here, like that, there's an exit sign. So like there's the door you walk through. This is a massive mural that takes up that whole wall. Again, this same theme. Now, again, I, my, my desire here is not to mock or, or poke fun. I, I want to show you how we tend to understand this first incorrectly. We tend to understand it of like, in Christ, he's going to give me supernatural strength to win, or he's going to give me the ability to do things I couldn't normally do, sort of this superhuman strength to, to be victorious. Now, that's not theologically 180 degrees wrong, but it is not what Paul is saying here. It's not what Paul is saying here. Remember, the context is contentment. The context is, you know, whether I'm in plenty or hunger, abundance and need, here's the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, Paul's saying, I can be content in all things through him who strengthens me. The, the word through here could just as easily, and, and I think maybe more clearly, be translated in. It's the same word that Paul uses over and over when he says, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. So I want you to hear this verse this way. I'm going to paraphrase it, but I think it's an accurate representation of what Paul is saying. I, I can do all things, or I can be content in all things, in him, in the one who strengthens me. Or maybe you could even say it this way. I am content in all things, in him who gives me contentment or, or, or in him who is my contentment. 
Let me connect this verse to Mick Jagger's lyrics. What Paul is actually saying is, is I can be content or I can be satisfied in anything, in everything, all things, in him, Jesus, who is my satisfaction, my gyra, my provider, my, my fullness. That's what this verse is saying. I can be content, I can be satisfied, no matter what, highs, lows, good, bad, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away because he himself is my satisfaction. He is my strength. Now, I want you to see why I spent time talking about Seneca and the, and the Stoic philosophers because although before verse 13, it seems like Paul is saying, yeah, yeah, true fullness of life is in self-sufficiency, but in verse 13, he, he jukes. In verse 13, he, he, he goes a different direction. He says, yeah, it's not in your out external circumstances, but nor is it in your internal self. It's actually not about being self-sufficient. It's about being Christ-sufficient. It's about leaning on Christ. You see, it turns out, Paul is saying, it's not enough just to be, have inner peace inside of you. No one can actually achieve that because we were not made to be self-sufficient. We were made to be dependent upon a higher power. In fact, I'd even encourage you, challenge you to think of it this way. I think the reason that we all crave fulfillment and satisfaction throughout our lives is testimony that we were not made to be self-sufficient. We were made to grab onto sufficiency from something external of our, to ourselves. The only question is, what will you grab onto? Where will you go to seek fullness? What do you think holds life for you? Because it's not in here. It's not just inside yourself. We all sort of know that. And by the way, Stoicism didn't really work out that well. How many Stoics do you know? Not that many. Now, the philosophy has kind of kept creeping back up in our culture in various ways, but for the most part, society you know, has, has voted. And, and, and the answer is, actually, you can't just be satisfied in and of yourself. We're constantly craving, constantly seeking. There has to be something we were made for that will fill us. And Paul's answer to Seneca is, there is fulfillment. The secret is I can be full. I can do all things. I can be content in all things in him, in Christ, the full one, the one who gives the strength, the one who satisfies, the one who gives contentment. Turns out verse 13 is extremely important. It just doesn't mean what we think it means. Now, I want you to think about Paul's life as we start to lead toward an application here. I want you to see how Paul lived this out. Because it's one thing for someone to say, I've found the secret to something, and they write a book about it, or they you know, make YouTube videos and make a lot of money, and then you look at their lives and you're like, you're not living that out. Paul's life was marked by unity with Jesus. He can't stop talking about being in Christ. Through years of serving Jesus, and let, let's not back away from this next word, 
suffering for Jesus, through years of serving Jesus and suffering for Jesus, Paul had learned deep dependence on Jesus. He did not start out that way, guys. Like even after his conversion, what you see, you see in Paul, even after, right after his conversion, is he's eager to go change the world. You know, he, he's eager to be used. Nothing wrong with being used. That was God's fuel in him. That was God's spirit in him. But it took Paul a long time of journeying and struggling and suffering, wrestling to get to a place that now near the very end of his life, he's saying, I've learned through plenty and want and hunger and abundance, I've learned the secret and here it is. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul had experienced calm in the midst of storms. He had experienced peace in the midst of life-threatening danger. And even as he wrote these words, don't forget he was experienced joy in the midst of imprisonment. So he says, as his life is sort of bearing testimony to this, he says, I can do all things, suffering, abundance, poverty, victory, defeat, life, death, all things, because I'm in Christ. And I've learned in Christ I am satisfied. So what we're seeing here is a man who centered his life on Jesus for decades, you know, two, three decades before he died. We're seeing the fruit at the end of someone's life of what it looks like to be wholly centered on Jesus Christ. I like the way Gordon Fee described Paul. Gordon Fee was a commentator who wrote a good commentary on Philippians. He said, Paul is a man in Christ. As such, he takes what Christ brings. If it means plenty, he is a man in Christ and that alone. If it means want, he is still a man in Christ. And he accepts deprivation as part of his discipleship. I want you to think about that. Whoa, deprivation is part of my discipleship. I don't want that. Oh, yes, you do. Here's why. Discipleship is not just getting smarter and better as a Christian. Discipleship is following Jesus more and more closely. That's what discipleship is. If you believe that Jesus is life, then following Jesus more closely means you're closer and closer to life, which is what you really want. It's what your soul actually craves. So deprivation as part of discipleship, when we're in our right minds, we say, bring it on. But that takes so much faith. Let's talk about us. Let's, let's get to the so what. At some level, I, I know how our brains work, and this is how my brain works anyway. I'll confess this. It's like I, I listen to a message. In my case, I study to teach a message, and I'm like, okay, man, this is all true. But I don't really know what it looks like for me to live this out because in the real world, it doesn't seem like Jesus is enough. 
This is how my brain works. By the way, I, I think, you know, if, if you identify with me, I think part of that is because we're all still in process. We're redeemed, but we're not yet glorified. Okay, when we get to glory, it'll just be Christ is enough. How did I ever think he wasn't? But right now, it's like, I, I believe he's enough, but man, it doesn't feel like he's enough. And so I want you to think about this for a minute. In, in some sense, we're all philosophers, aren't we? Philosophers dedicate their lives to, to finding what, what's, what's real, what's true, what satisfies, what's the meaning of life. In a sense, we're all little mini philosophers. We're trying to answer the question, where is fullness? Where is wisdom? Where is satisfaction? Mick Jagger was a philosopher. And in a very generalized sense, you could say, okay, for, for philosophical paths, there's, really, there's only two ways you can answer this question. Either look for satisfaction inside of me or look for satisfaction outside of me. The scripture is saying, well, it's not inside of you. It's not in self-sufficiency. I hope you know that. I hope you sense that. You will never get inner peace just by kind of trying to zen and transcend your circumstances. Life doesn't work that way. You can try and try, and try, and try, and you'll find you can't get no satisfaction. But the scripture is also saying it's not in the circumstances of life either. There's no amount of money. There's no, you know, quality of your marriage. There, there's no number of kids or grandkids. There, there's no, you know, place wonderful and beautiful enough to live. Many, many of you came from other places of the country to this place, hoping that this is a little bit closer step to fullness of life, you know, better cost of living, different political environment, maybe, you know, different kind of culture, whatever it is, it's a step closer to fullness of life. And nothing wrong with moving here. We moved here for similar reasons in many ways, but you find over time, it's not the answer. We know this. So, so satisfaction is not in here. Satisfaction is not in all the external circumstances. What Paul is saying is, here's the secret. Here's the answer. The secret to contentment is learning to live in Christ. That means grabbing onto something outside of myself, namely Jesus Christ, the only one who can fully satisfy us, and then learning to live in him, attaching myself to Jesus, being united with Christ and living out that reality. You are united to Jesus at the point of your salvation. The rest of your Christian life is learning to walk in unity with him, walk in harmony with him, walk in uh, a contentment, which is him. And it takes time. But let me close with this encouragement. One of the most powerful moments in the life of Jesus happened not too long before his death. He traveled to Jerusalem amidst one of the, the, the annual festivals, the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was a dangerous time for him to be in Jerusalem because the Jewish authorities were looking for him. This was not the time he was arrested. It was shortly before that. And he sort of hid himself in the crowds until this one key moment when he stood up in front of everyone and shouted with a loud voice. There were probably hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds or thousands of people who were able to hear him. And he said, John chapter seven, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. How 
How remarkably bold. He must have sounded somewhat crazy. Jesus knows what you need. And he couldn't help but cry out to that crowd and this morning again to this crowd through the Spirit speaking through our text. The secret to your thirst is communion with Jesus. If anyone is thirsty, Jesus says, let him come to me and drink. Our invitation to joy this morning is to consider one area of your life where you struggle with contentment. For most of us, that should not be hard to name. And apply this text directly to it. What is God saying to you about that circumstance? What is God saying to you through this text? Trust the spirit inside of you enough to actually speak to you through these verses. And then here's a second thing. It's not unconnected, but it's addition to what would a step toward Jesus look like for you this week? Because if you know intellectually through the, the word of God that fullness of life is found in Jesus, he's the one that you need to take your thirst to. What step will you take this week to move closer to him? For some of you, your walk with Christ is kind of been dormant. Maybe your prayers consist of what you do simply before a meal or around in your fellowship group, in your home, you pray a little bit. It's time for you to talk to Jesus about real things, about your thirst, about your sense of dissatisfaction, about your circumstances. It's time for you to bring that to him, to pour it out to him. So maybe this week you need to get on your knees. You need to lay on your prostrate on, your, on the ground or you just need to sit or stand or, or whatever. Get, get yourself in a posture of prayer. Maybe go for a walk. Maybe pull out a journal. Just take a step toward Jesus this week. This week. As we're considering these things, let me pray for us. And then we're going to sing that song again that was introduced to us, Jira which comes right from our text this morning. We go ahead and ask the band to come on out and get ready. Jaira, provider. And every time we sing that word, you know, Jaira, I want you to think provider, provider. You are enough. Jaira, provider, you are enough. I will be content in every circumstance because you are provider, Jaira, forever enough, always enough, more than enough. Father, would you help us? We at times feel so weak in this. At times, it feels like satisfaction is so far beyond reality. And God, I want to pray for those of us that are still early in our walk toward you, early in this journey of knowing and feeling. But the truth about most of us probably is that we're not at the place that Paul was when he wrote these words. And Father, I pray that, that by the power of your spirit, you, you wouldn't give us a, a sense of shame about that, but that you would just give us a, a sense of longing 
to grow. I pray even now, Father, for people in the room or watching online who actually don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. They haven't even taken the first step towards you. Would you use even this word this morning to stir in them this sense that they do have a thirst that only Jesus can satisfy? And if I'm describing you right now, I encourage you, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Believe that he is enough for you. Take a step of faith toward him. Confess your sins. Confess your heart that hasn't wanted to be near God. Receive the grace that is yours through the cross of Jesus Christ, the provision that is yours through the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. And then hope toward resurrection because that is now your future. And I pray for all of us in different places on our journey that we would take a step toward Jesus even as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray.